Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're talking with Dr. Pavna Brahma about a topic many people face, but not many people actually talk about, which is infertility. So let me first tell you a little bit about Dr. Brahma. Pavna K. Brahma, MD, joined the RBA team of physicians in 2010 after completing her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Emory University. Dr. Brahma completed both her Bachelor of Science in Biopsychology and Medical Degree at the University of Michigan. Motivated by her interest in reproductive medicine and women's health, she then completed a four-year residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan Hospitals. Her desire to help couples achieve their dream of parenthood led her to pursue a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Emory University. After completing her three-year fellowship at Emory, she joined RBA. In addition, she focuses clinically on tailoring treatments and protocols based on the patient's individual needs. Hi, so good to talk to you. Thank you for giving me some of your time right now. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. First, before we get into infertility, let's talk a little bit about what brought you to wanting to study this. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Well, I've always been interested in women's health and I knew early on in medical school that I I was really, I wanted to dedicate a lot of my life to reproduction and women. And, um, and, and as, as I got deep into OBGYN training, I found such connections with my patients in the fertility uh, realm. I, I was motivated and wanted to find ways to help. Um, it's such a, it's such a genuinely easy place to connect with people. And so I've, I've really kind of polarized towards it. It's also a field where the science is fascinating and I feel really excited because my, you know, the science in our field developed so quickly. And, and so it was, it was exciting to me for many different reasons. It was a connection. Yeah. Oh, good. So I think a lot of questions people have is just simply what is infertility? Yeah, I mean, we define infertility as uh, attempting to conceive over the course of about a year and and not getting to the goal and not not meeting the goal. So after 12 months of trying to get pregnant, if someone is not pregnant yet, uh, that's how we how we define infertility. So giving it, so if someone doesn't get pregnant in a few months, not to worry. So really, it's a 12 month um, threshold. Well, the threshold is, we interpret it differently based on a woman's age. And, you know, that's because reproductive aging can impact, you know, our outcomes. And so for women who are over 35 years old, um, attempting to conceive for about six months is a recommended threshold. If we're not pregnant at that point, it's a good idea to seek uh, a workup or make a consultation to discuss it with either a primary GYN or a fertility specialist to make sure that you can start to get some answers and get some testing underway. All right. So I'm personally fascinated about the over 35 because I had both my kids over 35. We're, we're happily Great. done with that. Um, but, a lot of yeah, the, that's wonderful. But, but a lot of the women that I see in the metropolitan area in New York City, mm-hmm. the age I think is higher than in other parts of the country where maybe they're trying a little younger. Yeah. What So what happens after 35? Like how dramatic is it? And should people worry that much? I mean, I was freaking out and we got pregnant our first try. 
That's phenomenal. That's wonderful. I mean, I think I think your point is is really well, well taken. Now, number one, these are the numbers are, are 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 used to guide us to keep us you know alert to things that can happen at certain age thresholds. I always try to make sure patients don't feel like a single month or a single birthday defines us. Um, you know, but all that being said, it's true. Women are born with a finite pool of eggs. We only get a certain amount when, as baby girls, and so by the time we're 35, we've depleted about 90% of our stash. And so we are. It, that is just a. That is just a kind of a, a scientific reason why we start to see shifts. We see shifts in the number of eggs. The other thing that changes is the quality and function of the eggs. And these are all personal points. You know, everybody has a, a different for optimal fertility window, but in general, by the age of 35, we see aneuploidy rates or, or genetic abnormality rates go up. Um, and so it's the combination that alerts everybody to kind of think about reproduction. And, and in my mind, in the mid-30s, um, you know, it's a great idea to get some basic testing done in general, even just an AMH level, which is a, which is just a serum blood test that can give us an idea of egg count and egg number just to guide us to see if your your journey will be in parallel with that or maybe it would be your fertility window could be a little uh, shorter or, or longer. These are all personalized points that you can get from some more testing. Could, could someone's, when they started their menstruation cycle, could that affect when their eggs start to, when they have less eggs? So say mm-hmm. someone starts their period at 12 mm-hmm. or someone starts at 14, would that affect that? We do tend to see there is an association, especially with um, with early with early menarche or getting your period really early in life, age eight, nine, ten. Not eight, um, nine, ten. And, and, mm-hmm, oh some, God, that's some, yes, yes, that can happen. Yes, that can happen. So, so, so those kinds of. Uh, settings have been associated with earlier menopause, um, but not necessarily, you know, that, you know, age 11 versus 12, you know, these kinds of things have, have not been completely, uh, cannot been completely shown. Mm-hmm. What about someone's habits in life prior to trying to get pregnant? Could that affect fertility? Well, yes. I mean, so there are definitely lifestyle factors that play in, um, you know, some basic habits like smoking, you know, um, smoking can definitely impact someone's fertility, not only from a tubal perspective, because there are these tiny, tiny hairs within a tube that can dysfunction, can undergo dysfunction if you've been a longtime smoker. But we even see an impact on egg quality for women who have smoked their lives throughout their lives. Um, so definitely substances and exposures, um, you know, also weight is an important part of things in our overall health. So being close to your ideal body weight is, is, is really the goal when you're entering your reproductive years, um, being underweight or being overweight. Both of those things can impact ovulation and our ability to release eggs. Um, and so they can impact fertility also. So what, so what if somebody is overweight, they're trying to lose weight. And if someone's underweight, they're trying to just put on extra weight. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's always exactly that simple, but but big picture, yes. I mean, if somebody, we would, it's ideal to get close to your ideal body weight. So there's a way of calculating that, a body mass index, which uses your height and your weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and being in an ideal body mass index prior to getting pregnant is it, it gives us the best outcomes, best fertility outcomes, as well as um, even pregnancy-related outcomes as far as risks of high blood pressure, preeclampsia, diabetes, or pregnancy, those types of things. And ironically, being underweight is is just as much of a problem because when we're when our body mass index is 18, or if the body is 
it's undernourished, um, then it actually also impacts ovulation. And so some of the pituitary hormones aren't released um, normally. And so the ovary doesn't respond and make an egg each month. Oh, interesting. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about, um, I know there's different testing processes. Now, um, personally, I was fortunate in this that I didn't have this, but I went, I watched several of my close friends go through infertility. Um, two mm-hmm. of them actually were able to get pregnant and one after already having two kids decided I have two kids, I won't try for that third, but they had a lot of different testing. Um, can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about the different processes for both partners? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for, for women, the testing really revolves around the, 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 the needed systems, the systems that have to function well to get pregnant. So one of, one of those is anatomy um, and specifically the uterus, which ends up being the womb um, that needs to be tested through either x-ray imaging or ultrasound to make sure there's no fibroids or polyps or anything right in the area where the embryo would implant. The fallopian tubes also are part of the anatomic assessment, and that lets us know that the tube, knowing the tubes are patent is critical. Um, the tubes are really the only place in nature where fertilization can happen, where the egg and sperm can meet. And so looking at the uterus and tubes are usually done in one test called an HSG, hysterosalpingogram, where a tiny bit of dye is placed within the uterus and it's watched with x-ray imaging as it spills out so we can check the whole internal anatomy. Um, so that that's part of the testing. For women, we also do lab testing that looks at hormones. There's a hormone called AMH, um, anti-mullerian hormone. That's the hormone made by the ovaries, and it it's a quantitative assessment of what's in our personal egg bank, um, and so that's used to just look at our biological clock. We also integrate a variety of hormones, um, pituitary hormones like FSH that you might have read about. Those are some of the brain messages to the ovary. Um, we look at hormones like your thyroid. Thyroid is a really important metabolic hormone, and sometimes it imp- is impacting fertility outcomes or, or ovulation. So there's really kind of some lab work that's focused at looking at preconception screening as well as hormonal assessment. Um, and then we also consider certain types of testing like uh, immunization status, um, genetic carrier screening, uh, just to be really thorough so that we're empowered with everything we need to know before we're pregnant. So it's really just lab work, the HSG mainly for women, sometimes an ultrasound. For men, a semen analysis um, is needed to kind of get a sense of concentration of sperm, the quantity of sperm, the motility of the sperm. And, you know, about 30% of the time, there's both a female and a male issue. Um, so, you know, it's really, it is really important to get male testing started. Usually the starting point is the semen analysis. If it's abnormal, it's often repeated or it's tested with other, you know, blood work or an exam by a urologist. Um, so usually starting point is the semen analysis. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. I think there's probably the least invasive is to start with a semen analysis. And then mm-hmm. what is, if both partners have issues, um, what's the percentage of then succeeding or is it usually one partner or the other? How often is it both? Um, it's both about 30% of the time. 
Uh, and so, uh, you know, and then after that, as far as success, success is really individualized based on what our, what, what the actual issue is and a woman's chronologic age, uh, and the type of treatment we're doing. So for example, um, if a woman is under 35, um, and she has an ovulatory issue, uh, and we can give simple medications and help her ovulate, um, and there is not a male factor, then we, we think about success added per treatment cycle in addition to your internal kind of body's chances of being pregnant that month. So doing simpler treatments adds anywhere from 10 to 15% to a woman's baseline chance of pregnancy. Um, if we do more invasive treatments, success rate, again, mirrors the age, but a woman under 35, if she needed in vitro fertilization, we have about a 50% success rate. Uh, per embryo transfer. So it's, it's, it's pretty personalized to age and the type of treatment we're doing and what their diagnosis is. Are there different types of fertility issues? And if so, can you explain them a bit? Yes. I mean, there, there are broad sets of reasons why, why people have fertility struggles. Um, many of them are related to some of the anatomy issues that I had initially mentioned. And some of those can be, you know, uh, fibroids, polyps, things like endometriosis, a condition where there's inflammation inside the pelvis and certain glands are growing external to the uterus and that can cause inflammation and dysfunction of the tubes especially. Um, so some of those conditions can cause issues. There are ovulatory issues, so something called polycystic ovary syndrome where you know women uh, ha actually have a high number of eggs in their personal egg bank but their body does not uh, consistently ovulate and release the eggs. And so they go through um, typically having irregular cycles. There tends to be uh, insulin resistance associated with it um, and some degrees of metabolic dysfunction. So there are ovulatory issues that can occur. Um, there are also general endocrine issues, having thyroid issues um, or abnormalities that all should be treated ahead of time. And that kind of helps optimize the chances of even conceiving on one's own. Um, and then of course, in the, in the male factor realm, um, you know, th those, those seminal deficiencies, mo uh, there are things called varicoceles, uh, conditions that can increase the chances that a man has an abnormal semen analysis. Um, so there are multiple testicular and other issues that can occur there. And some couples actually come to see us for other reasons, genetic issues or conditions they may carry. So, um, the, the applications of IVF and treatments in general are changing. Um, egg reserve is also a very common reason why we um, see couples and, and is a strong diagnosis that we get, actually. And, and it's related to probably a combination of aging um, and, and, and probably a societal, as we're seeing, women are not ready to have children in their early 20s as, as they did when we were, when our great-grandmothers got pregnant, you know. And so, um, and so as, we, as we are trying to you know, there's so many amazing things modern women are doing. And so part of that is leading to a delay in when we start our families. And so uh, having low egg reserve does tend to be probably one of the most common reasons and diagnoses that we see, we see patients for. Interesting. So can you, I, I think IVF is one of the things that when people think of fertility, their mind typically goes to like, okay, IVF, but there are other sequences, correct? Before people jump to IVF? Yeah, there are a lot of different treatments that we do. So some of the treatments are are, are much lower in technology. Um, you know, so some are, are something. There's a treatment 
um, kind of protocol called ovulation induction. And what we do there is we give medications and we basically ask the body to make an extra egg or two in the month. Sometimes we're using oral medicine. Sometimes we're using some injection medications. Then we do ultrasounds and we monitor to see when are the follicles going to be ready? When is the, when is the body ready to ovulate? And then ovulation is timed with either intercourse at home or something called intrauterine inseminations where the sperm is washed and millions of sperm are placed at the top of the uterus kind of perfectly timed with ovulation. Um, so that's, that is a typically usually a, an initial step. Um, and you know, those, those, those cycles are, they're, they're a lot less invasive. Um, they are a lot more natural. And so their success rate per try isn't as high. So it's usually something we think about doing a, a couple of two or three cycles of to see if we can get to our goal that way first. How often are you seeing now again, I've had, I've been in this world for a while. So I'm seeing, a, I have a lot of friends have done this. I had one friend that did Clomid and actually had six fertilizations and then they did a reduction. Is that common? That is not coming with just oral clomid. <laughs> it was clomid. Um, I swear. Wow, that's amazing. Well, no, no, she didn't have she didn't have six kids. Um, she, yes, <laughs> no, yes, she did that not. Would that, so would, that would be so like litter. Um, <laughs> but, oh my goodness! But I remember yes. I mean, that was a problem. That is, I mean, your point is a good one. Yeah, your point is a good one because we we don't have as much control when we do those ovulation induction medications. It's part of the value of doing the testing on the ultrasound so we can see what we predict. For me, if I have a patient who comes in and has, has, has had a super response, you know, four to six follicles, I'll typically talk to her and recommend that we cancel, that we sit that cycle out because she had <laughs> such a robust response, you know, cause we, because we don't have control of how many eggs and sperm will meet in the tube. So you're, you're right. But, but technically the risk of multiples when we do oral medicines alone is only 10%. Although that number is way higher than nature. Um, it's a lot more common to have, um, to have a singleton. And for me in the past 15 years, I've had one case of triplets um, on Clomid, but nothing more than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. she actually, the whole pregnancy for her turned out not to be viable, but I do remember there was a freak out and it's, a, yeah, her, yes. body, her body wouldn't have been, and this was many years ago. This was probably 12 years ago that this okay. happened, or maybe, maybe not mm -hmm. quite 12, maybe 10. So can you talk a little bit, so say those steps didn't work. You tried the less um, invasive mm -hmm. and someone mm -hmm. then goes to IVF. Can you talk a little bit about what that process is, looks like for someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, IVF is, is, is a process where we give injection hormone medications over the course of about two weeks. Um, and we grow and recruit more follicles, uh, than the brain and body would normally in a month. So normally we'd make one egg per month over the course of daily injections with IVF. Our goal is to try to make 10 or 15 follicles grow into eggs. Um, during that process, there are some frequent ultrasound visits and, and blood work because we're watching and micromanaging the doses of medicines. And then the process ends when everything looks ripe and mature with an egg retrieval, which is essentially a small outpatient procedure where we go and collect the eggs while um, the patient is asleep with anesthesia. Um, we use a transvaginal ultrasound and, um, and, and a tiny needle, and we go in and, 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 and drain the fluid from the follicles where the eggs, eggs lie. Um, the eggs are then fertilized by the laboratory with sperm and Embryos are created, um, and then embryos are replaced back into the uterus um, based on 
their stage of development and appropriate times and some other techniques that we have uh, as far as genetic testing on embryos and other things, the timing of that can vary a little bit when we replace embryos back. The first part of IVF takes about two weeks. Um, and then sometimes there's a month break in between before we do the embryo replacement. It's mm-hmm. the friends I've watched go through this. It seemed like a massive commitment. They get, they're giving themselves shots or their partner's giving shots. They had to, mm-hmm. I remember one friend, she's like, I can't make any plans cause I might have to go for an ultrasound. It was a, seemed like a real commitment, like of time yeah. and just availability. Yeah. Is that correct? I mean, it is, I would, I do consider it. Um, you know, it's usually a two-week time frame where there is a commitment um, into staying in town. Almost all of my patients are at work during their IVF uh, protocols. We reserve really early morning appointments for our IVF patients. So monitoring is typically done early between 7 to 9 a.m. And they come in, get their labs and ultrasound, then they head off to their day. And we call or contact them later with their instructions based on their lab work. So we try to be as minimally invasive into someone's schedule as possible. But it is definitely a time frame where, you know, minimizing travel is ideal, um, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And then from an emotional standpoint, how do, you, how do you recommend or how do you guys support couples going through IVF? Because it seems like such an emotional time. Mm-hmm. It is. It, I mean, it's a really emotional time and, 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 and mainly because it means so much. You know, our outcomes mean so much. These are goals that people have that are so dear to them being parents, you know. So, I mean, it, we take a lot of care to, to provide emotional and, um, and, and support for patients. We have um, we have support groups here. We have support groups that are separated out by um, female alone, male alone, and couples. So we try to provide op- opportunities for, you know, support groups with psychologists. Um, we have a lot of um, alternative kind of therapies that we, we offer for our patients and encourage them to consider, um, including fertility yoga. We actually have a fertility yoga class at our center every two weeks um, after hours for patients. We have um, acupuncturists come in um, and do options, and we, or or we refer to acupuncture. So definitely try to think about the whole whole body and kind of the whole approach to how to support someone through something that's stressful and difficult. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I love hearing that you combine disciplines, you know, the traditional fertility treatments along with things like yoga and acupuncture. I'm sure mm-hmm. stress affects one's ability, even if you're having medical mm-hmm. assistance to getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. then once someone's pregnant, and this is a question I have um, from being some working with pregnant women, I, I tend to see a lot of fear and anxiety around the pregnancy when someone underwent IVF, which is understandable. They put a lot of money usually and time and mm-hmm. effort into, into getting pregnant and it becomes very precious. Um, what mm-hmm. Are they considered high risk after that or can we treat them through pregnancy as if it was a natural fertilization? Mm-hmm. I mean, only there are certain things that make uh, a patient, you know, 
be high risk. But IVF alone does not tend to be a, a reason why they're immediately going to be high risk. There is a time in the first trimester where um, their reproductive endocrinologist is going to wean them off of medication. So we, we, we have had them on supportive hormones. And during that time frame, they typically stay in our care um, so that we can make sure that transition goes well. And then patients kind of graduate from us around 10 weeks. Um, and if they are, you know, of advanced age or if they have an indication for a blood thinner or have hypertension or diabetes or there there are some things that define being higher risk um, but somebody who is healthy who is 37 is not necessarily a high risk patient you know so um, we, we tend to you know it's not it's not true that you you immediately are high risk because you're IVF you know um, it, it's pretty individualized after that most patients are going into a back to a general OBGYN and then um, a, a high risk OBGYN adds, is more like a consultant who does some testing, usually non-invasive screening at the end of the first trimester, and then would make a decision to say if I if they needed to follow a patient, you know, because of a condition she had or a pregnancy historical event that happened to her or those types of things. So once they come back, once they come into class, even if they had IVF, as long as they got cleared, they're we can work with them as, as anyone can, as any situation. Mm-hmm. Like they were just, oh, that's good. Cause I definitely and I understand the yeah. the emotional mm-hmm aspect because there's Mm -hmm. such, you know, if you've been struggling for so long and then you finally conceive, I can imagine the fear and anxiety around that. So once people do conceive, do you have additional support groups? Because they're no longer in the infertility support groups. Is there any, how would you suggest someone works with that, that fear that something's going to happen to the pregnancy? Um we well as just as a as a as a clinic we 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 still have patients can still attend any of our support groups but the, but it's true that most trans, patients in our in our care are transitioning to their OBGYN um, near the end of the first trimester and so what i like to do in those cases is have somebody definitely set up with one-on-one individualized counseling at the very least somebody that could follow them throughout the pregnancy um, and, you know, help, you know, who, who it's, it's wonderful if they already are familiar with the person and have, you know, become accustomed to talking with them before even being pregnant, because then that transition into talking about the anxiety that comes with pregnancy and, um, and, and, and is even easier for them to deal with as a pair. But it tends to be individualized counseling that we have at this point. I'm sure that um, OBGYNs, though, would have some some versions of support groups, but I, it might be such a personal thing that perhaps speaking one-on-one could be, would be, you know, ideal, but. I do think now that I'm talking more about it, it does sound like a really good idea to have a a support group for people that have successfully gone through IVF just to help Mm -hmm. with those concerns. Yeah. It's a great idea. Is there a point you recommend that a couple no longer try fertility treatment and maybe seek out, um, adoption or another option? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, those are really those are difficult moments and difficult conversations to have. But it, there have been times. Um, there are times when either treatments, multiple treatments, have been done, uh, and without changing a major part of the path, such as moving on to egg donation IVF or doing something different to help get to the goal. The idea of continuing treatments might is futile. And I, my goal is always to counsel patients so that they're empowered and we make decisions together that, um, 
make sense for them that they feel like they're fully informed on, you know? And so if, if, if doing another round of treatment has a really low chance of working, I always talk with patients about that ahead of time. Um, I, you know, I, so it's, there are moments like that. They tend to be really kind of a a combination of cognitive and emotional moments where decisions are made together, you know, uh, but there are alternatives, you know, Absolutely, that if especially matters if if a couple is comfortable with an alternative plan, um, such as um, you know adoption, embryo adoption, egg donation. There's so many uh, different ways to build families, um, surrogacy, different connection points that could help in particular cases. Um, then we always try to think about those too. And how wonderful that we have those options now. Mm-hmm. That it's not just you know like you know, sorry, tough luck, you know, like that we have, if someone wants to have a family, that there Mm -hmm. is some manner in which that can be built, even if it's not necessarily with the two partners, you know, egg and sperm. Mm -hmm. So it's wonderful that that's out there. It is wonderful. You're right. Mm -hmm. Well, is there any, thank you for your time. Is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't touch upon about fertility, about treatment, about alternative disciplines that can help? Anything else you want to add? Um, I was, I mean, I feel like you covered so much. I thank you for being so thorough. I mean, I, I think, I, I hope that that turned out the way you wanted it to, but Absolutely. I feel like you talked about everything. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. So, um, where can people, if they're interested in hearing more about you, where can people find you? Um, I, I would say at the, we are, we don't currently have a blog just to say, to be honest, I have, um, I do have like a personal email, but we don't have a perfect way to connect with people yet. We are working on that. So right now, um, they could find me through our office for sure. They could set up connections that way, but I don't have a very good online forum to, to meet with patients or talk about things. I wish I did. We're working on that. No worries. No worries. So those Mm -hmm. that are listening, if you're interested, I have Dr. Brahma's information in our, she'll have it on the show notes where she's working, her office, and you can connect with her there. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and effort. All right. Have a great day. Take care. All right. Great. You too. Okay. Thank you. Bye. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring, and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.